Jeremiah chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I will tell you and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. That this place shall no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. And I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate. And a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all of its plagues. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. Then you shall break the flask. In the sight of the men who go with you and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, even so I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again, and they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no place to bury Thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet, which because of all the houses on whose roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Then Jeremiah came from Tophet where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and he said to all the people, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns, all the doom that I have pronounced against it because they have stiffened their necks that they might not hear my words. We're in the middle of Jeremiah's eighth sermon it began in chapter 18 verse 1 it continues through chapter 19 and chapter 20 all the way to the end of, of, of verse 18 the sermon began at the potter's house and remember it began in the form of a parable jeremiah was told to go down to the potter's house and watch what the potter was doing and you'll remember the potter was sitting at a wheel and he began to mold and shape the clay. And then he found something wrong with the clay, that it wasn't suitable for the vessel that he wanted to make. And he squashed the pot and he began to reshape it. So the sermon began with a parable. And then Jeremiah hears that God, the divine potter, insists on remodeling the marred vessel. He tells Jeremiah to warn the people that God will soon destroy them and their land for idolatry. The parable, you'll remember, gave way to a plot in verse 18 of the last chapter on Jeremiah's life. The plot caused Jeremiah to plead and pray and then cry out to God to execute 
his persecutors. And now in chapter 19, Jeremiah pays another visit to the potter's house. But this time he isn't an observer. This time he's a buyer. This time Jeremiah will make a purchase, a clay flask. The Lord says to him, go and buy a jar. And the jar will once again become an object lesson. You have to understand something. Preachers really do want the audience to listen to the message. So every preacher, as you might imagine, wants to be heard. But a preacher's desire includes not just simply being heard, but being heeded. And so preachers will often teach and preach and say, look, I'm going to bring a message to you and I need you to be convinced of the message. And Jeremiah, I'm sure, wondered whether or not anyone was listening and whether or not anyone was con- was convinced by his message. By the way, when the object of your preaching is to convince someone, hey, God has a message for you, and that message includes a warning, and the warning is such that if you will pay attention with your mind and with your heart and with your life, you're going to see something substantially, remarkably, inevitably, amazingly change in your life. And that's part of the message of the Bible, isn't it? It's a message of hope. It's a message that if we will listen to what God has to say in the person of Jesus Christ, something remarkable and fundamental will take place inside of our heart. Now, when no one changes, when the preacher preaches the message over and over again, and there's little result or there's no result, you can imagine how frustrating that is. And so the purchase of the jar and the smashing of the jar is going to serve as an object lesson. Jeremiah is going to do something live and visual for the audience. And the coming judgment will be severe. And in a sense, the jar will serve as a symbol of that judgment. But the jar is something really different from what has taken place in chapter 18. In chapter 18, remember, the the clay was moldable, bendable changeable but now he's told to go to the potter's house and buy a flask but it's already frozen if you will in place it's been made and it's been fired and it can't change what it is the difference in the first pot and the second pot Time and fire. As a matter of fact, the coming judgment will be severe. And in a sense, the jar will serve at least one aspect of that judgment. The same way that Jeremiah smashes the pot, God's going to smash Jerusalem and he's going to smash Judah on repair. Many of you remember the, the poem that you learned as a little kid. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great ball. You know how it goes. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty. He's smashed. It's irreparable. Certain judgments often have certain destinies. And you see, there are certain destinies that can be changed. And by the way, if you're wondering whether or not your destiny can be changed, let me help you with that. Do you realize that if you find yourself in your heart and in your mind on a course that is distant from God, there's an opportunity for you to turn around and go in a different direction. But that isn't always the case. With cities and with nations... It isn't always the case, and it's certainly not the case in our world, in our universe. We live in a world that is saturated by sin. We live in a universe that has been pounded and consumed and saturated with wickedness and rebellion. And so the Bible has pronounced judgment on the planet Earth. 
there will come a time when the earth will be judged and it will be destroyed. One day, God will create a permanent reality where we will live in a world that is free from sin and free from sorrow. It will be unending and incorruptible. But in the next few chapters, Jeremiah wants the lesson of the smashed jar to have an impact on everyone who's watching and everyone who's listening. The people of Judah and Jerusalem have stubborn hearts and they are committed to disobedience. And that stubborn heart and that disobedience guarantees God's judgment. And by the way, if you're committed to rebellion, if you're committed to disobedience, it's a guarantee of judgment. So what do you suppose will happen to a nation that is committed to rebellion and committed to disobedience? Look at verse 1 again. Thus says the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. Now think about it. No one likes Jeremiah's message. You have to wonder how Jeremiah could influence so many people to hear the message. How is he going to get these people who don't want to have anything to do with him to listen to the message? And I'm going to suggest to you there's a reason why. The elders of the people and the elders of the priests take Jeremiah up on his invitation. It's going to be found in the next chapter. We, in our culture, in our society, we have a a, a thing called the Fifth Amendment. When you get arrested by the police, they say you have the right to remain silent because anything you say can and will be held against you. And they're pretty certain that Jeremiah is going to open his mouth. And he's going to say something. And they want to find some excuse. And they will. So he invites the leaders on a little adventure. And he says, go to the potter's house and get an earthen flask. The word flask in the Hebrew language is very funny. It's kind of a funny word. It's bakbuk. Bakbuk. You might be thinking, well, what is that? It's onomatopoeia. It's a, in other words, it's a word that sounds what it, it's supposed to do. We have words like that in our language. We might say, the wind went swoosh. It's when a word sounds like what it does. And makbuk is a word that meant a drinking vessel. It was usually between four and ten inches long. It was a little piece of clay like a cylinder it had a long thin neck and when you would pour water out it would go in the greek they have another line of word like that it's when people would speak a language that you couldn't understand they would use the word babble you know it's sort of like when you're hearing a foreign language and someone's speaking it sounds like it doesn't it doesn't sound like anything to you even though it makes perfect sense to the person who's speaking it the flask is a drinking vessel and it's very expensive it was delicate and once it was broken it couldn't really be put back together again So Jeremiah makes the purchase. He gets the pot, the point to motivate the leaders and the priests to repent. He's going to use a new illustration to get them to repent and turn to the Lord. And the potter's earthen flask is the point of no return. It can no longer be molded or shaped. And and so Jeremiah wants a ministry that he's hoping that in the end people will hear and respond He wants to give a message to the influential. You know, there are some ministries like that. There are ministries that say, we want to be impacting on the impactors. So who do you want to preach the gospel to? Doctors, lawyers, governors, Supreme Court justices, congressmen and senators, to the very, very rich. And so Jeremiah will begin the message 
in the hopes of influencing the influential. And so he's going to be a little bit creative. H.G. Wells once said, most people think once or twice in a lifetime. He wrote, I've made a reputation of thinking once or twice a month. He's trying to think outside the box. He's trying to be creative. And it says in chapter 19, verse 2, And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I'm going to tell you. So the Lord gives Jeremiah a message. The sermon isn't going to take place in the temple. It's not going to take place in the synagogue. Jeremiah moves the sermon to the gate nearest the valley of the son of Hinnom. This is a gigantic chasm. If you ever get a chance to go with me to Israel, on the east, there's an east gate, there's a west gate, there's a north gate, and there's a south gate. And the valley of the Kidron, which is in the front of Jerusalem, was once a massive valley. It's been filled in over the centuries. And even now, it's still pretty steep. And then the Valley of Hinnom was also a massive valley. So you have two massive valleys that meet at the very base of Mount Sinai. And so you go, and, in, and at that time, it would have been very, very steep. And it was also a dump, a trash heap. It was called the Valley of Tophet. And the reason that it became the place called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, during the time of Jehoiakim, it was a place of foreign idolatry and, for, and false worship. This is a place where people worshipped false gods. This is a place where they chose to execute their own children in the most perverse fashion. They would offer their children to the idol of Molech. And I've told you about this before in the past. Molech was a bronze statue with a burning bosom, so to speak, and they would fill it with coal and they would heat this brass statue till it was white hot and Molech's arms were extended and they would take their babies and they would place it on the burning hot arms of Molech and literally fry their children to death. And because of this atrocity, because of this perversion, because of this wickedness, Josiah would turn the valley into a vast, smoldering trash heap. And so Jeremiah and his audience, they're standing outside the gate, and no doubt they see the smoldering fires and the burning garbage. Have you ever thought about having a quiet time at the dump? Just you and your family. You just, you know, you drive out, you fill a, a truck full of garbage and you go out to the dump and then you roll down the windows and you smell the filthy burning trash. And then you remind yourself of something. That you're surrounded by the stuff that some people live for and some people die for. Every day, day after day, they accumulate trash and they accumulate garbage and they wear it out and it's no longer valuable and they take it to the dump and they burn it like trash. And so that's the setting for the sermon. The potsherd gate, cock seat, it's the east gate. It's derived from a similar word. It, in the Hebrew language, karsik was descended from a word. It meant the place where the sun set or the place where the sun goes down. And so it's the east gate. It's the place at the end of the day, if you will. The Targum identifies this with the dung gate in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 13. And what a place, what a place for a sermon. Now. Fast forward to the time of Jesus. Jesus will also preach in this same place. In that time, it was then called the Valley of Gehenna. It was descended from the word Beninom, Gehinom, and then it came to mean Gehenna. And so when Jesus was talking about the end of the world and he was talking about the 
life as we know it coming to a, a surprising and climactic close, he would refer to this valley of Gehenna as the symbol of the eternal, unquenchable fires of hell where the worm refuses to die. It became a type, if you will, a symbol, a picture of things that have no value. So, in verse 3 it says, we, so we go now from the jar to the judgment in verse 3. Look what it says. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. In other words, now think about it. They see the smoke. They see the fire. They smell the filth. This is the place where people dump their trash. This is the place where poor people go to die. This is the place where rotting, decomposing flesh is surrounding the place. It smells filthy and disgusting. Jeremiah is speaking, but the people's ears aren't ringing. And he says, behold, I'm going to bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. In other words, this is so catastrophic. The crisis is so profound that it makes your head be begin to buzz when you think about the catastrophe. By the way, the people at this point have already lost interest in Jeremiah's sermon. It's bad enough that they not only lose interest, they even lose apathy. Edmund Burke, who said, nothing is so fatal to religion as indifference, which at least is half infidelity. In other words, Jeremiah is once again going to bring this powerful sermon, but they're not listening in verse 4 because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place. By that he means a place that is completely foreign to what it was intended to be. He means an alien place in the sense that Judah and Jerusalem was supposed to be the place where people could hear about the true and the living God, where they could hear the truth about what it meant to have a covenantal relationship with God. This was this was the place where it was supposed to be that you could hear the words of the prophets and you could hear the words of Moses. But it's an alien place because they burn incense in it to other G.O.D.S., whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. In other words, it is a place that is steeped, saturated in idolatry. And it's also a place where they have taken their future and killed it on a foreign altar. And in verse five, it says they have also built the high places of Baal. To burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it ever even enter my mind. Here's what God was in effect saying. Where in the world, where, in what world, in what world did it occur to you that that's a good idea? Even the most primitive cultures, even the most primitive cultures and societies, even the most pagan primitive cultures and societies knew that it was wrong to kill a child. And what's wrong, more wrong than, than killing a child? It is the painful killing. It's the purposeful, painful killing of an innocent child. They have. So what are the reasons that God is executing the judgment? The people have forsaken God. The people have made their nation a nation of idolatry and false religion and false worship. The people have persecuted and killed the true believers. The people have practiced human sacrifice. Did you in your wildest imagination think that that kind of activity would go unnoticed and unpunished. Samuel Smiles made a famous little quote. Most of you are familiar with it. So a thought, reap an act. So an act, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. It never occurred to you, people of Judah and Jerusalem, that there wouldn't be consequences to forgetting and forsaking God. 
those of you who have been with me and thankfully you have many of you, you've been here week after week and you go, wait a minute, this sermon sounds strangely familiar. How many different ways is Jeremiah going to preach the same sermon? What's the appeal of forsaking God? What is the appeal of idolatry and false religion and false worship? Some have suggested, how could you be so ignorant or how could you be so stupid? Martin Luther King Jr. said, nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. John Owen, the Puritan, wrote, ignorance of God and of ourselves is the great principle and cause of all of our disquietments. And this arises mostly not from want of light and instruction, but for want of consideration and application. In other words, over and over again, someone must have told you that God loves you. Someone must have told you the truth about God and the Bible. Someone must have told you that your life doesn't have to be empty and dark and meaningless. Somebody must have told you that it's probably a bad idea for you to associate with that particular person or to drink that particular drink or take that particular drug or embark on a life of selfishness that was going to eventually result in you losing everything that's important to you. The pagan philosopher Socrates, commenting on the evil of ignorance, said, quote, that he who is neither good nor wise is nevertheless satisfied with himself. He has no desire for that of which he feels no want. It was Socrates' way of saying, we don't have a desire for things that we don't sense that we need. And so the people didn't sense any need for Jeremiah's message. Jeremiah told them that they forsook God, that, that they'd embraced idolatry, that they had done wickedness, but they, they didn't sense any need. In their mind, in their way of thinking, they were thinking, I guess I'm okay. I guess I'm fine. I guess there's really nothing fundamentally wrong with me. People imagine they don't need God or they don't want God, and therefore if God demands that people abandon sin and embrace him, Here's what they decide to do, that they'll abandon him and embrace sin. And it's hard when they hear the voice whisper inside of them. Turn from your sin, turn to the Savior, live a life that's honoring to him. And so in verse six, Jeremiah says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that this place shall no longer be called Tophet or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. In other words, the judgment would be so catastrophic and severe, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom would be renamed the Valley of Slaughter. Why? And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place in verse 7. Before I, I, I focus on that, I need you to understand something about this valley called Tophet or the valley called the Son of Hinnom. I'm going to paint a picture for you that I hope you'll understand. They're standing on the side of a cliff where trash is burning, and it's a deep, deep cliff. Have any of you ever seen the Grand Canyon in real life? Raise your hand. In real life, you've seen the Grand Canyon. How many of you have seen the Grand Canyon, at least in pictures? You've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon. Those of you who have seen the Grand Canyon in real life, I want you just for, um, to imagine, and those of you who have seen it in pictures, I want you to imagine that you're standing at the very edge of the Grand Canyon, and now I want you to imagine it filled with every dead human being in the United States of America. 300 million plus men, women, and children. Could 300 million Men, women, and children fill up the Grand Canyon. You would think not. But you would be wrong. It would make a sizable dent even in the Grand Canyon. Jeremiah is standing on the very edge of the Valley of Hinnom, and he's in effect asking the people to imagine the 
chasm filled with all of the dead people in Judah and Jerusalem. Imagine the bodies stacked one on top of another. I've had something similar to this happen in my real life. After September 11th, 2001, when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers, the 15-acre pad that was the Twin Towers collapsed. The two towers collapsed, killing 3,000 United States citizens. Do you know how many... 18-wheel trucks it would take to load the body of 3,000 dead Americans. Imagine a tractor-trailer comes. It's an 18-wheeler. And you load up the first one. And then you load up the second one. And then you load up the third one. And the fourth one. And the fifth one. And the tenth one. And the fifteenth one. And when you finally come to the 18th truck, you would just now... Be filling it up with all of the dead bodies that died at that site. And so in verse 7 it says, And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies in the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. So what is the council in verse 7? And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem. What is the council of Judah and Jerusalem? The council is this. We're going to be fine. There's nothing wrong. There's no invading army. The judgment is a big, fat, stinking joke. Jeremiah is trying to scare you. He's trying to make your life miserable. He's trying to give you the heebie-jeebies. He's trying to get you to sweat, and he's trying to make you feel bad. But the truth is, we're going to live out our lives in peace and security and safety. We're going to live to see our children and grandchildren grow up in prosperity. But their hopes and their dreams will be shattered. They want what you want. A safe place for your children and your grandchildren. But for Judah and Jerusalem, it's not going to happen. And you know, sometimes we live so close to the edge that we sometimes think that nothing bad could ever happen to us. Even though in in the last several years, over 100,000 people died in a matter of six minutes when a tsunami hit And it went from East India all the way, well, it actually began in the Indian Ocean and then carried itself to the shores of India around the Pacific, around the rim there. And 100,000 people died. A thousand more people died at Hurricane Katrina. People died, 200,000 plus people in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Think about the number of people dead in China, the number of people dead in, in Turkey, the, the, the number of people dead in Chile. When you least expect it, all of a sudden the earth starts shaking, the ground swells, the ocean rises. But here's Jeremiah's message. Your hopes and your dreams will be shattered And the people will be killed by an invading army and their corpses will be eaten by carrion birds and wild animals. And then in verse 8 it says, I'll make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all of its plagues. In other words, he's saying, I want you to envision a capital that is an object of horror. We're talking about the kind of horror and catastrophe and crisis that takes your breath away. I've seen it on occasion. I've gotten tiny glimpses of it. When I went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and I drove through the neighborhood that my family lived in and grew up in and I saw my father's house where it had been filled up with water up to 17 feet high. And then I saw my sister's house and it was completely washed away. And I went through the neighborhood and it looked like a bomb exploded. It looked like the aftermath of Hiroshima or Nagasaki. 
or you go to ground zero and you see 15 acres of two-story buildings and you walk in and you smell the, the trash and the fire and the burning flesh and you get some idea of how something so magnificent could become so rotten so quickly. And that's the vision. Desolate, hissing, horror. In other words, Jeremiah is trying to create an image that will literally take your breath away. And in verse 9 it says, And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone who shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall be driven them to despair. In the world of an observant Jew, the most disgusting thing that an observant Jew could do is embrace cannibalism. It's disgusting. In the message, Jeremiah is telling them that it's going to be so bad and the catastrophe is going to be so complete and the provisions are going to be so completely cut off that you are going to find yourself doing the unacceptable and the unimaginable. And by the way, during the siege, when the Babylonians would come, they would be left without supplies. In desperation, they would turn to the only food source that was available. And if you don't believe me, read Lamentations chapter 2, verse 20, where Jeremiah records the fulfillment of the prophecy as people in absolute despair turn on each other. There's such a fine line between civilization and chaos. You would think in one of the major American cities in America like New Orleans, how is it possible within a matter of days that it becomes like something out of a bad zombie movie? Where chaos reigns. Where you're surrounded by water, but none of it you can drink. And you find yourself on an island of hopelessness. Despair is a hard and a cruel master. And he says, at this point in, in the message, this is the, the commandment of the Lord. Hey, Jeremiah, at this point in verse 10, then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. At this point in the drama of the message, he goes, lift up the pot and then with all of your might, smash it to the ground. And then in verse 11, it says, and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts. Even so, I will break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no place to bury. Did you ever see the movie by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol? Usually you wind up watching it every year. Remember, Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Christmas past. And Christmas present and Christmas future. There's one particularly dramatic moment in the story where Ebenezer Scrooge is face to face with his own grave. He sees his name and he sees the place. He attends his own funeral. When I was in New Orleans, I went to the place where my grandfather and my father are buried. In New Orleans, the graves are above ground because in New Orleans, everything is below sea level. And if you bury a body, if you dig in the dirt of New Orleans, there's so much water in this place that literally graves will be washed away. And so there's stone mausoleums. And in the stone mausoleum, where my grandfather is buried and where my father is buried, I imagined this place being the place perhaps where one day I will be buried. 
and I can place my hand on the stone where my grandfather lies buried and where my father lies buried. And I can imagine my name under their name in the same place. And what Jeremiah is inviting them to do is to look at the dump, the trash heap and the garbage and saying, you might have prepared a place where you thought you would be buried with your ancestors. But I want you to look into this pit and I want you to see this garbage dump because I want you to see the place where they're going to find your body where your rotting corpse is going to decompose in the not too distant future Jeremiah preaches the same message that he's preached at the garbage dump he lifts the clay vessel He puts it in a place where everyone can see it. I wonder if he raises his voice or I wonder if he whispers. The Lord God himself will smash the nation beyond repair. The smash jar illustrates how thorough the destruction and how certain the destruction and how irreparable the destruction. So many people are dead. There's no room to bury them. Even though the pit is deep and long, there's still not enough room to put them all in the dirt. God will destroy the city and its wicked people and Their homes and their palaces and their city will have no demonstrable difference than the garbage pit where he's preaching the sermon. Even the houses of the nobles and the wealthy. Imagine you're at a dump. And it looks exactly like all of the professional baseball players and basketball players from Cherry Hills. Imagine the most beautiful homes that you can imagine. Imagine million-dollar homes, and they look like a bombed-out rubble. God would pronounce and execute judgment because of idolatry. And look what it says in verse 13, astrology. And it says, and the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet because of the houses on which the roofs that they burned incense to all the hosts of heaven and poured out drink offering to other gods. In Jerusalem, in the 5th century B.C., it looked like adobe houses. They had flat roofs and they would ascend stairs and they would do all kinds of weird and wicked things on top of those roofs. They would worship false gods. They would do weird rituals. They would pray to the gods and goddesses of the sky. They would be on top of the flat roof and then they would look up into the heavens and they would see the sun and the moon and the stars and they would see it go across the night light. And they would imagine that these were deities, that these were celestial gods who influenced their lives, who determined their paths, who dictated their futures. And so they would make offering to them. They have no idea. That they were nothing more than giant balls of gas and rock running in an orbit that was established by God. But it really isn't that different from from you or me. Don't you know people who say, I'm the victim of bad circumstances. I guess fate has dealt me a bad blow. They think that their lives are dictated by the government or they're dictated by the economy or it's dictated by their mother or father or brother or sister. They think that their lives are controlled by other people. And the Bible says that your life is not controlled by other people, but your life is in control. It's being controlled by God. That there's a real, true and living God who controls all things, who establishes all things. And in verse 14, it says Then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. He stood in the court of the Lord's house and he said to all the people. So he leaves the dump. He returns back through the gate. He goes back to the temple and he preaches an abbreviated version. He'll leave the garbage dump, return the gate, make his way back to the courtyard in the temple. And in verse 15, he says, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel. 
Behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I pronounced against it, because they stiffened their necks and they have not heard my words. So he preaches the same message in shorter version. He gives the reasons the people are stubborn, stiff-necked. The people rejected the Lord. Now, this is the key concept. They had rejected the Lord. They would rejected the Bible. They would rejected the message. They were willful and wicked, and they chose to commit themselves to wickedness rather than God's commands. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 7, verse 27, it says, The Lord says, I will deal with them according to their conduct. And by their own standards, I will judge them. In other words, God says, I'm just going to do what you think is right. What do you think should happen to a liar? And what do you think should happen to a thief? And what do you think should happen to a criminal? And usually the way it works is, if someone takes something from you, what, do you, what should be their punishment? If someone kills your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, what should be their punishment? If someone steals your stuff, what should be their punishment? If someone lies to you, what should be their punishment? If someone falsely accuses you, what should be their punishment? God will one day judge the world. But we must never forget the reason why God must judge the world. It's because of the stubborn human heart. It's because of a, the people's refusal to repent. In Psalm 96, verse 13, it says, For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. You know, the Bible teaches the fact of judgment. But the Bible also teaches that judgment really takes place in three ways. In the past, and in the present, and in the future. How has judgment taken place in the past? Well, guess what? It took place on the cross of Calvary. In a very real sense, the judgment that has taken place in the past has taken place at the cross, and at this judgment bar, Satan was judged. His power over the believer was broken. Here, the sins of the believer were judged and put away. In a very real sense, this thing called the cross resulted in the execution of the one and only sinless person who has ever been on the planet, your Savior, Jesus. But in that judgment... You find hope and redemption and reconciliation and wholeness and wellness. Oswald Chambers said, all heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell terribly afraid of it. While men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. And just like the message of Jeremiah to a dying city and a dying state, the message of the cross seems stupid. To people who have no idea that it is the one message that will ensure their forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. There's a present judgment which is taking place daily in the life of the believer. It talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. This continual judgment goes on in the life of the believer. Or... A judgment from God. Because we refuse to listen and obey and grow in grace. There must be a constant and continual judging of personal sin in the life of the believer, it says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And then there's a future judgment. Even of the saints. Of the living nations. A great white throne judgment. A judgment for fallen angels. The judgment of the saints takes place in the context, 
not of sin and salvation, but rather of works and rewards. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Saints are in mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, which says that those who, who are judged shall have the praise of God. And by the way, that's never talked about by the wicked. This is a judgment not for destiny, but for adjustment, for reward or loss according to works, for position in the kingdom, everyone according to what they've done. Does your life matter? Yes. Does what you say and do matter? The answer is yes. Christian, your sins were judged at Calvary. Christian, live your life in a way that's honoring and pleasing to God. You know, Jonathan Edwards famously preached. You have been once more warned today. While the door of the ark yet stands open, you have, as it were, once again heard the knocks of the hammer and the axe building of the ark to put you in mind that a flood is approaching. Take heed, therefore, that you do not still stop your ears. Treat these warnings with a regardless heart and still neglect the great work which you have to do, lest the flood of wrath suddenly come upon you, sweep you away. And there be no remedy. He preached this sermon over almost 300 years ago. Listen to the sound of the hammer and the axe as Noah and his sons build the ark. Why? Because it is the instrument of redemption. It is the instrument of survival. It is the redemption of how to survive the upcoming flood. And what is your ark? It's Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, once again, watch Jeremiah pick up the pot and smash it to the ground. And then ask yourself this question. Did you listen carefully to Jeremiah's sermon? One person did. And decided that Jeremiah is going to have to pay. In the opening verse of chapter 20, now Pazur, the son of Emir, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. He struck Jeremiah, the prophet, put him in stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the way of the of the Lord. They found him. They arrested him. They beat him and they incarcerated him. But that's for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord. Someone was listening, and they didn't like what Jeremiah had to say. And Heavenly Father, I trust that someone's listening. I trust that someone likes what we have to say. That judgment, though certain, need not be irreparable. Heavenly Father, we know that our sins were judged on Calvary's cross. That, Lord, we have the ability to turn from our sin and turn to the Savior. That we have the ability to be changed if we'll just trust Jesus. And, Lord, I pray that that would be each and every person's hope. That they would turn from sin and turn to the Savior. That they would not be content to hear the pot shatter and simply walk away. In Jesus' name, amen.